Hello and welcome to Explore the Symphony. I'm your host, Marjolaine Fournier, Assistant Principal Bass with the National Arts Centre Orchestra. My guest, Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler, is one of Canada's foremost music journalists, credited with over 60 articles for Le Droit, The Globe and Mail, and CBC Radio-Canada. In this series, we discuss the inspiration, lives, and music of great composers. This season, we're studying music that changed music. Hello, and welcome to Studio P3. I'm sitting here with Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler. And within this series of Exploring the Symphony, we've chosen a topic um, that's deep, very deep, and especially with Bach. Uh, the topic is music that changed the way we listen to music. And I'll tell you, Jean-Jacques, that to prepare for this subject, Bach, and these, these uh, concertos that we're looking at, I don't know where to start. Bach is so vast and his oeuvre is so vast. There's so many pieces that he wrote. There's such a variety of music. There's such a depth of um, instrumental music, religious music, counterpoint, the harmony, his styles, and he's changed every musician's life, every music listener's life, every uh, interpreter of music. Where do we begin, Jean-Jacques? Where do we, let's, let's start with the end of his career, 70, uh, 1750, when he dies. When he dies, um, he, it is, in fact, cutting uh, the, the century, the 18th century, into two parts. And it is very symbolic that he dies in 1750. He dominated, as a musician, he dominated the first part. There was no question notwithstanding the fact that his son and Telemann and sometimes Handel uh, were in great competition with him and were sometimes better known than he was. But you, you said very well um, what he, all the things he did, both to music, both to, the, to, to, to uh, playing music and listening to music. And we'll come back to that in a, in a few seconds. Um, so that is one thing. And then the second part of that century, because the time, the zeitgeist, the, uh, the, the time had changed so much, the society changed so much that we, we, we parted, we went away from a religious society um, or religiously organized society towards, and, and of course also, uh, you know, the, the nobility and that, 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 that went almost together with it. Um, uh, we went into a society which became true enlightenment, a uh, society in which human beings were looking at each other, wondering what, uh, what they were doing on this earth and how they could, they could um, deal with each other. And so music would be starting to say all kinds of other things. And then you have Haydn, uh, Mozart, and Beethoven as that enormous second block which dominates the second part of the 18th century. So, and that's when he almost disappeared. We'll have to wait at the beginning of the uh, 19th century, eight, around the 1800s, uh, uh, people start writing about him again and putting it at the same level as Handel. <laughs> 
Isn't that interesting? I mean, you know, I, when I was preparing this, I, I found some of those, those writings of music critics or people that wrote into, into specialized newspapers about, about Bach. And they said, oh, yes, you know, he is as great as Handel and as great as Telemann. And um, there's still a great difference between between those those people. I, I, I must say, very honestly, I will try to nail it at a given moment. And then you have to wait for for Mendelssohn, of course, through his teacher Zelter. Zelter, who was a great great admirer of Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote wonderful things about Johann Sebastian Bach, um, who said, you know. One could continue, and I'm just quoting by heart, one could continue listening to his cantatas and they will never, never leave you. And, 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 and continue, you know, that continuity of listening to it, the renewal of, of, of the music that, that makes you listen and discover always new things is because um, there is a great difference also between uh, for musicians... And for uh, listeners um, um, in relationship with the music of, of, of Bach. You see, Bach is, um, when he, uh, his compositions are perfect labyrinth of which he knows the, the, the outlet, the resolve. I use two different words, resolve and the outlet. Musicians, when they interpret Bach, it is virtuosically and musically absolutely perfectly in order. It is orderly, clarity. And at the same time, um, they, 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 they stay close to him and they follow him. So up to a certain point, musically, they get out of the labyrinth. When you're a listener, you... You hang in as long as you can. And at a given moment, there is that, that rupture somewhere. And then you try to cling at it and try to get back into it. And then you're back into it and you disappear within it. And, um, and this kind of music, this, this music is, is because it is absolute music. And that we poor human beings, you know, cannot always follow this absolute music. I must say that um, um, it was still music, and that's why some of the people in the second part of the 18th century said that it was, he was behind, that he was heavy, that this was the old school. But his music was still music that was written um, in a fugue, a vertical fugue, like, <laughs> um, yes. like the spires of the of the, the cathedrals that were being built in, in, in medieval times. And he was the last one that, that put all these elements together. And I'll come back to the, all the elements together. And uh, then you get to the new world in which you have the melody that takes over, Haydn. And uh, the people that were admirers of Bach said, oh, this is, this is very, this is simplistic. Melody is simplistic. Melody is something totally different, and it responds to a new period that is coming up, and, and, and people will follow the melodies, and we're still cling so much to the melodies, you see. It's a very different world, a very different world. The world of absolute order, 
which was also a labyrinth, and I think we're getting there, that absolute order, beauty of an absolute order on the one side and the labyrinth at the other side. And um, because a fugue, a fugue in Italian comes from uh, from two words. It can be carried uh, by two words. And uh, one of those words is fugere, that means to flee. And the other one is fugare, that means to chase. <laughs> and fleeing and chasing, you, 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 what, where am I? What am I? Who where am is, I? Where yeah. is the subject of the music? It's gone. I've lost it. You're reminding me very much, and I have to interrupt you, but and maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong. But at first, when I was a student, Bach was very dry for me, very dry, and compared to beautiful melodies of Rachmaninoff, let's say, boy, was he dry. And then I realized that it's not because there's order that there's no love, you know? And you, you start to understand that to get to God, sometimes you have to follow follow until you lose your sense and you get lost and then there's a stretto and you hear your team again and you grab on again and there you are and back does that with us all the time he takes us on a ride forces us to get lost and it's his purpose and then brings us home again so what i'm saying to people when, when you listen to Bach, you know just let yourself be taken by him Go for a ride. And mm-hmm. go for the ride. And sometimes you'll get lost. And sometimes you'll have that one second, that, that spark, that moment in which it just opens up and, uh, and light comes through it. And, of course, this is for all his, for not always, for all his works. I mean, he has written so many different kind of works. But and let me come back to what he What was he? Well, he was the quintessential musician for contrapuntal art. Counterpoint, certainly. Counterpoint is um, um, is, is is organizing time. So this is very important. Organizing time. Um, he would not. He he has not created new forms. He has not created new genres. But what he did, he opened up uh, expression. He opened up the, the 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 structural elements behind it. He opened up the art, architectural elements. These are these are extraordinary buildings, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and I always think they are vertical, although they're built on the notion of time, which is horizontal. Very true. So, what do you think he was setting out to do? What was his purpose? Because he's changed us. He didn't set, did he set out to change us? I think he was a great professional. I think he knew where he was going, but did he have a, a particular metaphysical purpose? Well, metaphysics was part of that time. It was a kind of metaphysics, but a very different kind of metaphysics than mm. those that, that, that the one that will come into the 19th century. And it, it was still a re- religious one. But in what he is great, he... 
he will go in search. He's an eternal student. He is. He goes to the basics. He listens to the different, the different uh, styles: the French style, the Italian style, and of course the Germanic style. He goes to listen to the great masters, and he assimilates very easily. Like Mozart assimilated very easily. I think there is that, that where the grandeur is about, mm-hmm. and he magnifies. So he, you have both the polyphonic element, and then you have the the, the melodic clarity. You have the influence of Germanic, Italian, French music. And uh, so he, assu- he assumes the revolution of the 17th century and he inherits the polyphonic, Occidental polyphonic tradition. And he puts it all together and he brings it to a level of universality. Universality both in thought and in music. And that's why you can play him in jazz. You can, you can, the swinger singers made wonderful, wonderful Bach improvisations, which were very close to what Bach meant. And you would have uh, appreciated that, you think? I don't know if he would appreciate it. That I think so. I think so. He went to he went to get music all over the place. He, he did. took he, he you know it, Italian Locatelli, Vivaldi, and, he, he, and then yeah. the, the French music Couperin. <laughs> he would go from left and right, integrate all these things, steal from himself, go from one work to another work, and and this creativity, this this proliferation of uh, brought him always on that extraordinary technical basis which he had and which he improved continuously. And it's interesting because um, technically almost perfect. When I was trying to uh, do my harmony class and we tried to uh, um, do chorale in chorals in back style, four voice chorals, I would do and I would work hard and sweat over my, you know, 16 bars. Mm And then the teacher would say, well, you could have done this, this. Let's see what Bach did. And of course, Bach's work was perfect. But there was almost always something that was crazily different in, inside. He broke the rules somehow, and that made it perfect. That's, it was amazing. That's what his genius is about. Yeah. It is when at a given moment of absolute perfection, you just open up that one little note. It's true. Yeah. And light comes in. And he knew, and he Light would revise. Light the rest yes. of the work and takes it to another level, and it makes us listen differently. And so he was an eternal student, mm-hmm. an excellent teacher because he understood how you learn one step at a time. I I do love to to think about back walking two hundred fifty miles to go here, Buxtehude. I love that yeah. idea, yeah. or him going over to some nearby town to see Handel, who wasn't there to see him, and yeah. and. A you bit know, snob, really, you know, a bit snob. He invented the, the word snob. I'm oh. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing. I never knew Bach was a student like that. And he was almost self-taught. He, this is how he learned, yeah. by listening. And just imagine what, what lessons and what, what lessons in music that his four sons, the four, that he knew had great, uh, great talent. Uh, Wilhelm Friedemann, which is the, the, uh, the oldest of the sons who became a musician. Then the great one, Carl Philipp Emanuel, who will become uh, better known than, than his father. 
rather given moment until the beginning of the 1800s. And then uh, of the second marriage, there are two other ones, uh, Johann Christoph Friedrich and then Johann Christian. Now, the, 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 there are ties here, which I, I, I like to see ties in, in the evolution of music. Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach has influenced Haydn and Johann Christian Bach has influenced Mozart. So uh, Mozart was was great in counterpoint. I mean, and so, so was Haydn. But melody took over. <laughs> and they were saying other things to the world. Uh, and at that and time, there were, there were other things too. And they were preparing a new world also. So do you think that Bach was shackled by his jobs like some other composers were? Do you think he was stuck? I, I work at, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I'm working for this court or this church. Uh, uh, sometimes, but you know, his, his greatness was such, was such that um, even when he had to compose for every Sunday a cantata, Um, he uh, his cantatas would be would be very different. He would be and and they would be um, at a level that was not the one of uh, milling out uh, a, 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 a an identical work like many other composers have done in their life. Second-rate composers have done, you know. Though he did, I have to bring you back, and I'm dying to just go into the the. The liturgical writing and the work, his his day to day jobs and everything. But talk about recycling and revisiting his old works. We have here on our program something like as I did my research, I I was pulling out my hair because I realized that this violin and oboe concerto that we're doing, which is BWV one zero six zero, and BWV just for for knowing is. The Bach's works catalog. That's all. Yeah. It's just a catalog. Very difficult. Yes, it's very, and it has been very difficult. In fact, um, one only started, you know, because you opened that yes, <laughs> that, yes. that, that avenue. They only started putting Bach's works together in the 1860s. So, isn't that interesting? Because there were no there were no published works as such. These were all handwritten works and copies that the musicians had. So. Uh, one had to so go back to of, all the musicians that uh-huh. had been, or the families of the musicians that had been around Bach, and uh, so so like this. I, that explains many things. Absolutely. That explains why I, I did a tour once playing all the Brandenburgs, and I was very deeply offended that we didn't play number one, number two, number three. We didn't do that. We mixed them up, and you know, and that's why they weren't necessarily written in that order. They, they were, were filed in that in, order. No, no. That's all. Now my question is about the, the because this is a typical example: violin and oboe concerto that uh, Chip Heyman and Pincus are going to play. Beautiful concerto for violin and oboe, but it was reconstructed from a double harpsichord concerto, which was reconstructed by an unfindable violin and oboe concerto. That's right. Boy. 
it, 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 it did exist, but this is history. You see, this is history. Now, um, Bach most probably himself uh, did the double uh, 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 clavichords or uh, harpsichord uh, mm -hmm. concerto uh, from his original oboe and, uh, um, uh, and violin. Uh, concerto. Um, afterwards, uh, people had to reconstruct, and there are different ways. There are different um, different reconstructions, you know, in the in, in the history of of, of uh, interpretation these days um, of that. And it's a beautiful work. How can we know that this was tied first? Because in a uh, uh, he, um, a uh, publisher in 1765, yes, in 1765 um, had quoted that there was an oboe and violin concerto. That is one thing. Um, and secondly, uh, the, 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 the scores of the two clavichords or the two harpsichords are very different. And one is very much tied to the, 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 the dimension of playing of the violin and the other one of the oboe. So we, we're kind of clear about that kind of historical uh, evolution. <laughs> and so we have this very, very nice concerto, which has the, um, the same thing happened, in fact, with this, uh, the two violin concerto, the double violin concerto, which he had reconstructed as a double clavichord, uh, double harpsichord really? concerto, yes, also. But the, 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 It's so beautiful on violin, I can't right. imagine. And on, oh. on, on uh, well, it's, it's, yeah. it's quite interesting on, on, the, on, the, on the harpsichord also. You now, know, you said clavichord. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I don't want to interrupt you, but he tried many keyboards, many different, and he was part of the evolution. You see, evolution of instruments went very fast at that time, and so that, and so, you know, whatever instrument you could find at that point you, you, you used but he would have used up to a certain point he must have used certainly already the uh, the evolving uh, what is it the uh, the uh, forte piano uh, mm. version I of think it he, also. he thought what I read is he thought it was too soft it wasn't like the top of the register was meh. that was their way of you know their, their system yeah. was very very uh, very tied to the instruments that so, they had and for which they had written more anyhow anyhow evolution of, of the, there are in fact at that concert not only that very beautiful um, uh, hobo, hobo and violin concerto uh, there is another concerto which is a, a, a very much tied to one of the Brandenburg concertos and uh, that, that, that concerto is uh, a concerto for uh, flute violin and harpsichord in, in, in which uh, the, the flute has uh, and the, the harpsichord has a very very important role because he, of course he was a great a great harpsichord specialist I mean um, there are two other works which are important works, the Brandenburg Concerto number two and the first suite. And if, uh, and I, I do think that uh, the, the first, the, a few words about the first suite. Um, Bach wrote lots of suites and, uh, and uh, usually the suites 
had in their all kinds of dances. They were born from dances on. So an Allemande, which was Germanic, a Courant, which was French, Sarabande, Spanish, and Gigue, which was originally an English dance, plus a few of the lighter French forms of dance, Gavotte, Menuet, Bourret, you know, the, I think that the French like to dance very much and possibly still. Um, I have, um, uh, and that was the normal, that was the normal organization. Now, what did he do with that first suite, which is at the concert? Um, he, he, he will make it a very French suite. So he gets out the, uh, the, the Germanic element, the Allemande. Um, there will be no Sarabande, no Spanish element. There will be no Gigue, English element. And so he will build it from um, all kinds of French dances, the Courant, the Gavotte, the Forlan, the Menuets, Bourret, Passepied, and you have them. But before that, when he starts, there is an introduction. And that introduction is very interesting because that is the longest piece of the work. That introduction is, a, is an, um, an overture. Um, I, I'll come back to the word overture, and it's in three parts, slow, fast, slow. And that is in the beginning also of what later will become the symphony. Now, until Mozart, uh, some of his symphonies are overtures. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. In the very beginning, the first symphonies that Mozart writes are called also overtures. So the, 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 there is a continuity there. He didn't. He will call some of those overtures later in different works. He will call them symphonias. So we're getting to that evolution of a new form of which, of course, we all know that Haydn is uh, the uh, the godfather. I won't say the father because it existed through before, but he's the godfather. And uh, brought it to fruition. So that's about the, the, the suite and about that first suite, which is a very French, a very seductive suite. And uh, two words about the Brandenburg Concerto, which is the number two, which will be number two, which is from the period of Curtin. Now in Curtin, when he arrived, uh, that was, uh, that was uh, uh, under uh, Calvinists and the Calvinist reform. The Calvinists didn't want him to create any religious music. So it, it was uh, symphonic, or orchestral, uh, instrumental music that he could do. So he starts composing um, suites and uh, the, the Brandenburg concertos. Um, some of them were uh, prepared there. And uh, he will be in those Brandenburg concertos. Um, he will be, in fact, creating also the, the possibility of the, what we will call later the concerto. <laughs> um, uh, there, is the, there are the, uh, the, the, the string instruments, and uh, that, uh, that is the, the foundation, you know, they, the, that's what they call the ripieno, the, 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 the playing together. And then there are the uh, four soloists here in, in that. But they, they're very much to go, uh, and that's called the concertino. <laughs> concertino. So ripieno playing all together, then the concertino, they, they, they're slightly um, outcast, but they disappear very often back into the ensemble. Not in this one, but in other of the other uh, Brandenburg concertos, he will have one of the soloists as the important soloist. And so there is a kind of pyramid which he starts to create, and, and from that on, of course, you'll start having also a solo uh, and, and a, a, a possibility of 
concert form, concerto form, um, which not only came from the Italian side. Mm. That's you, you know, you mentioned the other Brandenburgs, and we, we did talk about this earlier. Um, number five. Number five. The crazy, if you don't know, if you wonder how good a harpsichord player, he was an excellent violinist, apparently. Absolutely, excellent. Yeah. And the way he writes for the violin, my God. But in this fifth concerto, at the end of the first movement, there's this crazy cadenza, like a, a cadenza uh, yeah, 60, as in the 65 classical bars. sense. bars. The harpsichord by himself just takes off and goes, uh, goes nuts. Crazy. <laughs> there you go. And it's harmonically, he just goes, it's rock and roll. It's rock and roll. Honestly, I don't, I don't even understand how he could get these ideas in his head in the, in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. But there it is. So, mm-hmm. it, it, was the 18, uh, it was the 1800s already. At that ah, time. Yeah. So, but anyhow, that doesn't make any difference. Fantastic playing. Yeah, it's fantastic playing. It's fantastic writing. And it's, and it's that kind of, let's say, out-of-the-box thinking by mm-hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach. I have to bring us a little bit back to the subject of I, – I know that for the musician, for the player, your technique has to be very, very solid and specifically solid to be able to play well uh, anything by back as a keyboard player, as a violone player, as a, any instrument. Now, for the listener, you have to show a particular openness and the looseness to be able to let go and let his music. So you have to be as open as Johann Sebastian Bach was open towards the world around him. So this is what he did to change how we listen to music. Uh, Absolutely. You know, his son said, uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach said about him, next to him, we're all children. And I think this is it is this is so true. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, Zelter, uh, who was a, a great pedagogue and musician, and who was also a, a teacher of of Mendelssohn. If one happy day, he said, and I'm quoting him, if one happy day, I could make you hear a motet by Sebastian Bach, you will uh, feel you will feel in the center of the world. I have listened to these works hundreds of times and I will, have, I will never be finished with them. I'm translating from the German in my mind. so it's, And I will never be finished with them. It's extraordinary because one listens to them and one rediscovers and one goes one step further and in that extraordinary pursuit of finding the issue, the way out of the labyrinth. The way out of this absolute music, this transcendental music, or the answer. Perhaps there is no answer. Perhaps it's in, in the listening and in the openness of the listening to it. So never give up. Jean-Jacques, once again, you make me, I can't wait to play this concert. I think I will go home and uh, pull out my uh, gamba and play a little back. And I will, I cannot wait to listen to this concert. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. So do I. (laughs) Take care. That's all for this edition of Explore the Symphony. 
Send your comments and questions to nacpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Check out our sister podcast, the NACO cast, with the NAC Orchestra's principal bassoon, Christopher Millard. You can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcast.ca or searching for NACCNA in the iTunes Music Store. Musical excerpts provided by Naxos of Canada. So until next time, this is Marjolaine Fournier saying thank you and goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.